No, obedience is to allow yourself to be persuaded. Obedience can be summed up in, in saying and in believing that God's your friend. If you believe God's your friend, then you, you've obeyed. Forget every It's to believe that God is your friend. Okay. He said that um, it was listening with um, a heart to respond. Here she comes. Everybody quiet. Who said that? Yeah. Listening with a heart to respond. Yeah, that still sounds like what I'm going to do. And what what was your definition? Well, you could say... Uh, the, def the definition. What's the, the definition? The simplest way of saying it, if we're talking relationship, we could say theologically or we could say technical. I like Malcolm's definition for technical. That's a good technical way of saying it. But since we're talking about human beings, the easiest way to describe obedience in the scriptures is to believe God's your friend. To be persuaded that God's your friend. Which is the root word of the noun faith that we were talking about last night. It means to persuade another that you're their friend, right? And so the faith came, the faith that existed before anything, right? You could say it this way, in the beginning was faith, right? And that will start messing up the way that you think. In the beginning was faith, and faith was with God, and faith, faith was faith to faith with God, and faith was God. And faith was made flesh, right? And we beheld faith. And so that faith came to persuade us that God is our friend, that he's the friend of sinners, right? And there, listen, there's a real good reason why he's the friend of sinners, because you know what sinners are needing the most? Friends. Hopefully we've already gotten here, but if not, I'll just blow it up for you. A sinner is not talking about your identity. It's not a negative word about your personhood. A sinner means it speaks to the state that you're in. And it means to not be partaking of life, specifically eternal life. And so a sinner is someone that's in the state of death. Right? So the reason God's the friend of sinners is because he's got a life that can overcome death in the flesh. Right? And that's what we're needing more than anything. You know, you call people your friends that have been there for your life. Mm -hmm. The ones you call friends are the ones that have stood next to you, that have hugged you, that have cried with you, that have helped you, that have supported your life. And so God showed up to persuade us that he's our friend. And the way that he did that, because we were sinners, quote unquote, dying, not partaking of life, the way he showed himself to be friendly to us is that he conquered death in the flesh. He overcame the death that found an opportunity to manifest in our bodies, right? And he did it in a most self-sacrificing way, meaning that in order for him to do that, he couldn't just wave a magic wand. Like, he didn't come and suffer because he thought that's the, the coolest way. It wasn't semantics. It wasn't like, we can do it whichever way we like, but we'll do it like this. The only way he could overcome death in the flesh is if he got it right to indwell dying flesh. Because he's an incorruptible seed. 
And if you can get an incorruptible seed inside of a flesh that's perishing, what can happen is, is you can overcome the death in that flesh. And so that's how God showed himself to be friendly. That's how he showed himself to be our friend. And he did all that to persuade us that he's our friend. Now, when you believe, or rather when you've been persuaded, because the work is all him persuading you. When you've been persuaded that he's your friend, you have, quote-unquote, obeyed the gospel. That is the obedience to the faith. That's why Paul said his apostleship was given for obedience to the faith. Right? And so something you guys want to recognize that we all do. I tell the, the people in our church this a lot. We all got a dictionary in our hearts. You all, we got to turn that off. No sound because of the recording. You got to turn that off. Or we got to turn off the recording. Whichever way. But it's no point in recording it if we're going to have the fans. Mm-hmm. What was I saying? A dictionary in our hearts. Oh. <laughs> we all have a dictionary in our hearts. We've already decided what these terms mean. Yeah. When I say these words, you guys aren't all like, what does that mean? No, we like immediately, you already have a thought about what you think that term means. That's one of the biggest stumbling blocks to people understanding the scriptures. That's right. Because they don't read and wonder what does this word mean. They're reading in a meaning to the word already. And then they're imputing their definition to the word already. And so you're already shaping the text. Right? And so you got a dictionary in your heart. We all do. And so you want to be aware of that. For me, the word sinner, the way I was taught, the word sinner meant that, you know what? I was disgusting and ugly to God, right? I wasn't beautiful. It spoke to my personhood or my identity instead of my state. Same thing with the word righteous. The word righteous, I read my identity into that, right? Where it spoke about my personhood. Now that I'm righteous, now I'm beautiful to God. But the word righteous is also speaking to your state. It's not speaking to your identity. It's speaking to the state that you're in. And to be righteous is the state of one who is as they ought to be. Well, do you know what state you ought to be in? You ought to be in a state of a life that can never die. Because God created you to inherit eternal life. He created you to live and never die. And so to be righteous is to possess eternal life, a life that can't die. Because that's what you were made to have. Right? That's why we're righteous by faith. Because faith is the only thing that can give us an incorruptible life. And so that's what we were created to have. Right? Does that make sense? Yes. You guys see that? Yes. That's why you can see Jesus loving, quote unquote, sinners. That's why you can see Jesus thinking sinners were beautiful. Right? It says that we that Jesus used the parable. He talked about the man, the kingdom of God is as a man that sees a treasure in the field and then sells everything he has to buy the field. Well, he's the man that saw the treasure in the field. Well, the world was the field. And you were the treasure in the field. Mm-hmm. Well, if sinner meant that you were ugly and you had, your identity was shipwrecked, then how is it he would call you a treasure? That's before he went to the cross. That's before he was raised from the dead. Right? We didn't. That, that parable's not talking about us selling everything we have. I hate to break it to you. You can't buy the world. Neither can you sell everything you have and buy something from God. 
or redeem yourself. Right? Right. Did you have a question? Oh, I was just going to say it reminded me of the Good Samaritan, what you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, yeah. the person in need was the Good Samaritan. Mm. Uh, the, the person that stopped to help him and, and nourish him and saw him in his problem uh, and, and, got, and nursed him back to health, paid for his bill. That's right. And God's the Good Samaritan. Be his friend. Oh, yes. God's the Good Samaritan. Yeah. Right? God's not the, God's not the thief. It's the thief that beats you and bloodies you and leaves you for dead on the side of the road. That's right. That all happens apart from God. Right? It's the thief that steals, kills, and destroys. Jesus came into the earth. Jesus said that as God. He said that in John's gospel. Right? The gospel that begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Oh, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh. Jesus stood up in the middle of the temple and declared himself to be the light of the world. He declared himself to be Torah. He declared himself to be the law of God, the word of God, the manifestation of God, right? And what does God do when the woman was there? When the sinner was there, what did God do? Did God beat her, a bruiser, a punisher? No. Do you know who was there also? The people that called the devil father. What did they want to do? Stoner. Stoner. And what did they say? Moses says she should be stoned. Now, when you say Moses says she should be, should be stoned, you're saying God says she should be stoned. They're quoting the law. They're the interpretation of the law. And so that's to say God said she should be stoned, meaning God demands that she should be stoned. Well, something special was going on that day on a number of fronts. You know, that day was called Simcha Torah, which is the day you celebrate the law. And you celebrate the law as God with you to be a light unto your feet and a lamp unto your way. They were celebrating that in the temple. It's the eighth day of the great feast. So it's no accident Jesus stands up in there on the day they're celebrating the law. They're celebrating the Torah. That's why he said after this whole account, I'm the light of the world. He wasn't just talking like Gentile language. We think he's the light of the world and we just think a nice bright light. When he said he's the light of the world, he's talking Psalm 119. The word is a light unto your feet and a lamp unto your way. The law is a light unto your feet and a lamp unto your way. And those guys were telling Jesus that the word of God says that God demands that she be stoned. Well, Jesus gets down with his finger and writes on the cobblestones in the temple. Guess what the law was written by? The finger of God. And so Jesus writes, you guys presume to tell me what the law says? I wrote it with my finger. Let me tell you what the law says about God and how God will be with sinners. And then he stood up, and what did he do? He justified the ungodly. Isn't that what Paul says? Mm -hmm. That God justifies the ungodly? He, he removed the accuser, didn't he? He removed the sentence of death that was hanging over her head. He sent it far away from her. He removed the accusers of the brethren. He cleansed the temple. He was cleansing the temple. And he wasn't just cleansing the physical temple there. He was cleansing the temple that was that woman. Because you know why that woman was caught in the act of adultery? Do you know what adultery is? It's the fruit of believing you're an orphan in the earth. It's the fruit that comes forth in a person when they think they have to be the father of their own life. When they think they have to bring forth peace and love and joy and nurture their own life. Because when you look to the strength of the flesh to try to bring forth the fruit of God's life, all manner of concupiscence is coming out of you. Adultery being one of them. And so there's Jesus to cleanse her heart, which is the, the revelation of Ezekiel 36. 
When it says a new heart I'll give you. I'll sanctify my name. How did he sanctify? I mean, it's a crazy thing to think God's name had to be sanctified. I mean, why did God's name have to be sanctified? People profaned it. People profaned it. Amen. And you want to, listen, if you like to study Revelation, we are going to get to it. You want to remember that when you're reading Revelation. And you don't want to read it from the perspective of the name of God being profaned. Because I promise you, we've been taught to read Revelation in a way that is from the perspective of God's name being blasphemed. Yeah. And it even talks about that in Revelation. It says they blaspheme the Lord. Well, how do you blaspheme the Lord? Do you know how you blaspheme the Lord? You blame him for the death. You say that he's the one punishing sinners. You call him the punisher instead of the healer. You call him the condemner instead of the justifier. You call him the accuser. You paint God in the image of the thief. That's, right. That's how you blaspheme the name of the Lord. That's what Satan went and did to Eve in the garden. What did Satan say to Eve? Has God really told you that you can't eat from every tree we we don't read the dialect right there in the hebrew he wasn't questioning what god said it was more like it was a deception it was it's a deception but it was more like satan was calling into question the integrity of god right. meaning what kind of a god would keep back a tree from you yes how can he be the father you need if he's not even going to let you eat from every tree that's what it was, right? Did he really say you can't eat from every tree? What kind of a father would keep that from you? See, he was blaspheming the name of God to her, right? He was suggesting to her that God is not as he ought to be as father. I promise you, if you have in your hand death to give to your kids, you're not as you ought to be as father. And we all say that about human parents. If we see a human father beating their kids to the point of abuse and death, we all say they're not as they ought to be. And we even say we got to take the kids from them. But we have declared the name of God in the earth that way. And we don't even realize it. Large sections of the church. Right? I mean, this is why Israel had a problem. This is why God told Israel you were supposed to be priests. But you don't know me, so how can you minister me to the world? You don't know me as father. You know me as punisher. You don't know me as healer. You know me as condemner. And you're not ministering me to the Gentiles as the one that will come and save from death. You're ministering me to the Gentiles as the one that serves with death. That was the whole point there. And so Jesus cleanses the temple. This is how he cleanses you from the filthiness of your flesh. The filthiness of your flesh is that when God's name is defiled in your heart, you don't see him as he ought to be his father. And so if you don't see him as he ought to be his father, you're going to try to serve yourself with life. That's right. And if you try to serve yourself with life, do you know what's coming forth? The filthiness of the flesh. Hatred, envy, gossiping, backbiting. Imagine Jesus when he was nailed to the cross. Imagine if he didn't know God was as he ought to be his father. Imagine he didn't know God would serve him with the salvation that he needed. Imagine when Jesus was nailed to the cross, if he thought, I've got to save myself. Now, what type of filthiness do you think would have come out of him towards those people nailing him to a tree? Okay. That's the filthiness of the flesh. Yeah. 
right? And so God doesn't come and tell you to clean up your flesh. He sees that the root that's bringing forth the filthiness of the flesh is that you're living as if you're an orphan in the earth, needing to gather life to yourself. And he says that the way to, to cleanse them from the filthiness of the flesh is if I can come and put their flesh to rest. And the way I can put their flesh to rest is if I cleanse the temple, right? It's if I cleanse their heart. Yes. It's if I sanctify my name in their heart. And they begin to know me as healer, as justifier, as defender, as advocate, instead of punisher, condemner, accuser. If they begin to know me that way, they'll begin calling out to me for life instead of trying to gather life to themselves. And if they don't enlist their own strength to gather life to themselves, there's no opportunity for the filthiness of the flesh to manifest. Do you understand that dynamic? Right? You, I mean, for so long in the body of Christ, we don't understand how the fruit of the Spirit comes forth. We don't understand how the works of the flesh come forth. And we've just been living with the carnal mind, right? We see the fruit of the Spirit is good. We say that we should have that. But then if we don't understand how we're going to have it, then we end up thinking we got to produce it. And then we end up commanding branches to produce fruit. Imagine I come in here today and throw a branch on the ground and start telling that branch to produce fruit. Imagine I start telling that branch to pick itself up and be alive. Y'all would think I was crazy. You would think I got problems. This dude needs help. Like maybe more help than, you know, what we can give him here. But that's how we function in the body of Christ when we see a branch that isn't bearing fruit, the fruit of life that's bearing the fruit of death. The reason why they're bearing the fruit of death is because they've committed adultery. Adultery is not just talking about laying with the physical person, guys. What do you, the Old Testament talks about Israel committing adultery on God all day long. And it wasn't talking about them laying with the physical person. How did they do that? How do you commit adultery on God? It's called fornication in the scriptures, don't you know? And you know what fornication in the scriptures is talking about? It's talking about you being intimate with your own strength to try to bear a baby, the baby of God's life. And now your intimacy is with your own strength instead of your intimacy being with God. That's right. That woman caught in the act of adultery was not just about that woman. All of Israel had gone a-whoring after other gods. All of mankind had gone a-whoring after other gods. We're all the women caught in adultery. Every single one of us had gone a-whoring after other gods. And in the Old Testament... You built the gods with your own hands. That's why it's called worshiping the works of your own hands. That's what it means to walk after the flesh. You look at the strength in your own hand and you say, you know what? I see some pretty, I see a lot of strength there. Yeah. I got some good ability. I can do some stuff. I'm going to work my ability. I'm going to till my dying body and try to produce the fruit of God's life, which is what Cain did. That's the way of Cain. Cain tilled his dying body trying to produce the fruit of God's life and he wanted to be justified by his ability to produce the fruit of God's life. Right? You guys see that? Does that make sense? Okay. You want to talk about revolution now? Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking loud so everybody can hear. No, that's real good. That's some good stuff. And I just believe that the Holy Spirit wants to minister that to somebody. 
right? Um, all yeah. of that stuff. And I'm sure I'll get a message at some point after it's posted and someone will tell me and I'll think, you know what? I was wondering why I was saying all that, yeah. you know, because I did not intend to say any of that. Um, does that, does that have something, does, you know, when came at me and you were saying that I was thinking about maybe the, I don't know which one of the gospels offhand that it's in, but the, uh, you know, where, where the, the guy buries the town and, and, and he's coming back to Christ, Christ, and he says, well, I thought you were a hard man, he says to Christ, right? Or, or he says to God, I thought you were bad or hard or mean. Yeah. So I hit it. I, I, I don't know why that came out of me. I thought maybe that's saying the same thing. There's, I mean, there, it would take me like 30 minutes to explain that parable. But yeah, a parable is called a dark saying right. in the scriptures. It's a hitting meaning. And so I would just encourage everybody, when you read parables, don't read them literally. And don't try and get a literal picture. A parable is more like a painting, right? And it, like the Proverbs, it's called the dark saying. It doesn't mean there's darkness in the saying. It means that it's hidden to the natural eye. Mm -hmm. There's a tension involved with it that you're going to wrestle with to try to come to the real meaning, mm -hmm. right? So you never want to try to fit a parable together like a puzzle piece and try and dissect it like each individual verse or phrase. That's one of the great downfalls of Western Christianity in Western interpretation is that we've exchanged the beauty of the painting for individual verses. It's called missing the forest for the trees, yeah. right? The scriptures is painting a beautiful painting. That's what they're trying to paint. An individual verse is like a brushstroke, but if you focus in on an individual brushstroke, you're gonna miss the painting, right? Yes. And if you look in the Old Testament scriptures, they never had chapters and verses. Right. We added that. And it has a subconscious effect, guys. Oh, yeah. you, you close a book in your mind. You think, oh, that verse is over, we're on to the next verse. Close. Oh, that verse is over, we're on to the next verse. And you think it's a new book every time. We move from chapters to chapters and thinking that it's a new book. The Gospel of John is one context. And if you, don't un if you can't connect the end of John with the beginning of John, you're misinterpreting it. That's right. And human beings struggle to see the beginning from the end. We struggle to jump up out of ourselves and look at the spirit of prophecy all at once. We compartmentalize it, and then we struggle to understand it properly. Right? Does that make any sense? So we talked about Revelation last night. Just so everybody knows, tomorrow I'm going to talk about the mark of the beast. And I'm going to explain in great detail what the mark of the beast is. There's going to be no confusion about it. I'm going to explain in great detail what buying and selling is. There's going to be no confusion about it. And, and unless you've listened to me before say that, you probably never heard it like this before. Because I've looked. I've looked. But just to give everybody an indication, that there's a guy in the Old Testament that turned into a beast. And he was the king of Babylon. Babylon is mentioned in Revelation 18 with connection to the merchants buying and selling, right? And the mark of the beast is deeply connected with that. And so that's the spoiler, that the teaser I'll give you guys. But we'll go into great detail. We'll explain it from Revelation in the scriptures, exactly what the buying and selling is. Um, then we'll reveal it in the word made flesh in Jesus. We'll show how Jesus wasn't able to buy and sell when he was on the cross. And we'll show how he wasn't marked by the beast wow. on the cross. And you'll get a great picture of what it looks like in real time. Right? But again, we talked about the dictionary of our hearts. I said buy and sell. You guys already decided what that means. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. You already decided what it means. Yeah. I said this last night. This upsets people. 
You don't get to decide what it means. I don't get to decide what it means. You're not rabbi. I'm not rabbi. And so you don't get to read your own modern interpretation or modern marketplace interpretation into the scriptures because you're not rabbi. And I'll give another little teaser. Jesus talked about buying in chapter 3 of Revelation. And so he already mentioned buying and gave it its context before we get to chapter 13 where it talks about buying and selling. And I promise you, Jesus isn't talking about going to the grocery store and being able to buy groceries. That's not what he's talking about. I'm so sorry. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sorry. I say that because, you know, I can be loud and outspoken and people, you know, can be taken aback, right? But I'll go into great detail tomorrow. You'll have a hard time disagreeing with me, I promise. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the problems we have with people trying to interpret the book of Revelation is everybody and their mother wants to go read it and interpret it. Um, and people try to interpret it without a revelation of the Word made flesh in Jesus. You can't interpret the, the book of Revelation through your much studying. You can't interpret the book of Revelation through your intellect. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you try and study the book of Revelation, you're going to come out with it all wrong. And in fact, what I want to say to you, if you desire to understand what the letter or the book of Revelation is saying, then what you want to do is start talking with God about the word that was made flesh and getting a revelation of that. John wrote Revelation, and it's no accident he begins his gospel with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he goes on to say, and the word was made flesh. He begins First John by saying, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen, which we had handled, which we had touched, of the word of life. And so the revelation of Jesus Christ was revealed in his birth, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and is his ascension. The only way to understand what Revelation is talking about is if you first understand that. Right? We try so hard to get understanding ourselves. What I want to say to you is walk with the one who is understanding, and you'll find that you understand and you don't know how. Right? Because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are contained in what? Christ. That's what it says. And so if you think there's wisdom and knowledge in Revelation, the way you're going to get it is by understanding the wisdom that was revealed in Christ at the cross. Because Paul also said that Christ crucified is the power and the wisdom of God. And so we go about it backwards. We want to understand this. And I just got to promise you, if I took a survey in, in the body of Christ, and I'm part of the body of Christ, and I was also this way, so this is not to disparage anybody, you find very few people that could give an articulate answer about what the Word made flesh is. Just what it is. What does it say? I mean, what does it say? It says the Word was made flesh. What is that Word? Jesus. Right, but what does it mean? What does it mean? But what is the Logos? What is it? Yes, but what is the logic? Do you see what I'm saying? What God believes. Again, what does God believe? <laughs> this is what I'm saying. We, we, we have a bunch of Christian cliches. And we don't understand the depth of what these things mean. And then we want to go try and read Revelation. That's like trying to give a physics to my like eight-year-old niece. And telling her to read, read the physics book and think is she going to come out with the right answer. She's not. She's not. Right? 
And so if you desire to understand Revelation, let this prayer in your heart be to God that you see that the Word was made flesh in Jesus. You don't know exactly what that means, but you desire to know. And you know He desires more than anything to show you. Because if you don't understand that, you're never going to see what the book of Revelation is talking about. You know like those black light markers where you write on the wall and you can't see it, but you take the black light and then you could see it? That's what the book of Revelation is like. And the Word made flesh is the black light. And if you don't shine the black light on the writing, you're not going to see it. You're going to see something, and you're going to establish your own vain imaginations is what you're going to do. And you're going to call it the Scripture, right? You're going to say, it says right there. Yeah, the Pharisees said, it says right here, God demands she be stoned. And the Word of God was standing there, and he said, I don't condemn her. Right? So there's a difference between what a person reads in the Scripture and what the Word of God says. Right? Lots of people can read Scriptures. The Pharisees read Scripture. The Pharisee had all the Scriptures memorized. And then there was the Word standing right in front of them, and they couldn't even recognize Him. Right? So that's one of the biggest problems we have with the book of Revelation. Just to remind everybody, last night, because not everybody was here, we talked about Revelation as actually a book about creation. It's not a book about destruction. God declaring the uh, beginning from the end, or the end from the beginning. I, I, I can't remember which way I got it. But God is finishing in Revelation what he started in Genesis chapter 1. And that's how you want to look at Revelation. It's not a book about destruction, it's a book about creation. If you insist on it being a book about destruction, then okay, it's, a, it's the destruction of chaos and confusion. It's the destruction of darkness, just like in Genesis chapter 1. Okay? You guys follow me with that? And so the book of Revelation is about God's eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ before he created anything, before he said, let there be light. It's a laying bare of what God's eternal purpose in Christ has always been. Just like Paul said, we were predestined in Christ, right? God predestined all of creation in Christ. And the book of Revelation is God fulfilling that. It's him completing it. That's why Jesus goes on and on about I'm Alpha and I'm Omega, right? I am the beginning of God's eternal purpose. I set God's eternal purpose in motion when I came into the earth as the light. And then death came into the earth. And that death couldn't keep me from continuing God's eternal purpose. Just like I entered into the darkness in Genesis chapter 1, I entered into the darkness of man's death at the cross to once again bring God's eternal purpose back into alignment. And I am Omega. Here I am completing or bringing to fruition what we began way back in Genesis when we said, let us. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Does that make any sense? You guys following that? So we're going to read a whole lot of verses tonight. And we're going to talk about the horsemen. And we're going to talk about the vials. Vials means bowls. We're going to talk about the wrath of the lamb. We're going to talk about Gog and Magog. We're going to talk about all of that. We're going to put it in its proper context, which is a struggle for humans because we read chapter 1 and then we forget what we read. And by the time we get to chapter 19 and 20, we certainly don't even remember what we read in chapter 16. And I just want to give you guys some more hints when you're reading it. The book of Revelation is not written chronologically. 
There's portions of it that are chronological, but it hops around. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to think that it's going necessarily chronologically in order of time and space, right? You want to keep that in the back of your mind. It jumps around. Greg, could you just review with us again what that eternal purpose was? It was about God wanting to put on incorruptible flesh, right? Yes. The eternal purpose of God is that he wanted to dwell with human beings in glorified immortal flesh in a glorified earth. That was what he began. He decided, he looked at himself and he said, look at this wonderful life we have. What can best express this beautiful life we have? What can best uh, experience this beautiful life we have? Where do we want to spend all eternity ourselves? God first decided where he wanted to spend all eternity. And he dreamt up a human body. And then he said, let us make man after that image. And then he made man after that image, right? But the man needed to be in the likeness of God, which is immortal flesh, right? Adam wasn't clothed in immortal flesh yet. And so God's eternal purpose was that he wanted to dwell in a glorified earth where there's no death, no weakness, with humans that have glorified immortal flesh. And he himself would dwell in glorified immortal flesh with them for all eternity. Right? That was his eternal purpose. That's what he's always been working. That's what he's always been after. Right? So that's what connects Revelation with Genesis. That's what connects Revelation with Genesis. And I know we have a whole lot of people, we all have opinions, right? And there's a whole lot of opinions about Revelation right now. And if somebody wants to talk with me after, I can prove from the scriptures what I'm about to say. But that's why Revelation ends with a new heaven and a new earth, and the sea having been removed, right? Because there was a sea in between heaven and earth in the first creation. And God always intended for the heaven and the earth to collide. That's why Adam was earthy and God was heavenly. And that's why they met in the Garden of Eden. That's the place where heaven and earth met. And God was trying to influence Adam through the faith to eat from the tree of life. And then Adam having dominion over all creation, if he could eat from the tree of life, heaven and earth would collide. The earth would be baptized in immortality and Adam would be clothed in immortality. And that would bring about God's eternal purpose. That's why you have Alpha and Omega at the end of Revelation saying, it is done. What is done? The sea that was in Genesis between heaven and earth, it's been removed. And heaven and earth are one. That's the new heaven and the new earth. There's no more death, which is what God was after to begin with, an earth wherein there is no death. And when he says it is done, when you look at that in the Hebrew, it would be the same thing as the it is good that's in Genesis. And if you read the first several verses in Genesis, there's one place where God doesn't say it's good. And I, listen, I study a lot, right? I mean, trust me, you can't get the spirit by studying. So I'm not telling you, you need to study a lot. But I've read, you know, many ancient Jewish rabbis, and they wrestle with that. And they've come up with many ideas about why there wasn't an it is good there. And they don't understand it, I promise you, because they don't see the word made flesh. And they're not understanding revelation. Right? But the reason why God didn't say it is good is because heaven and earth hadn't collided yet and the earth hadn't been glorified yet. Right? I mean, he hadn't even finished making Adam yet and Adam was going to be naked. Adam was in the image of God, but he hadn't put on the likeness of immortality yet. And an immortal can't die. And so when God told Adam, if you eat from that tree, you can die, it's clear he wasn't immortal yet. Amen. Right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So we talk about the horsemen. We get, we're going to talk about the, the, the bowls of judgment, the wrath of the lamb, the, the wrath of God. Yeah. Everybody's like, oh, man. No wonder you're sweating so bad. 
<laughs> I just got to tell you, when you understand it, it, it doesn't stress you out, right? The problem is, again, we already have a definition for wrath. You, you already have a definition of wrath. And I'll just say this. I can't remember the verse. I'll have to find it. But there's a verse that talks about the wrath of God is not the same as the wrath of a man. And if your description of the wrath of God looks like the wrath of Khan from Star Trek, <laughs> you're worshiping the creation is what's happened. And that's how most people read Revelation. They're worshiping the creation, not the creator. Go ahead. Most most mainstream Christianity, if I can use that term, believes that God created man immortal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's where we get all the other offshoots and things. When immortality was really to take place when he partook of the tree of life. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, he was naked. Which he didn't. Right. That's why you have to be clothed. Mm -hmm. The scriptures talk ad nauseum about being clothed upon. Uh -huh. Right. They talk ad nauseum about that. That's immortality, right? To be clothed upon. That's why God came and clothed upon Adam yeah. at, with the lamb, the life of his lamb. Jesus was clothed upon by the life of God when he was raised from the dead. He was clothed in the glory and immortality of God inside of human flesh. So most of the time when we read about the horsemen, I mean, I kind of told you guys last night, how many of you think the horsemen were sent by God? <laughs> Everyone. Everyone. <laughs> How many of you think the horsemen were doing God's work? Yeah. Right? So most of us have read all about all those things I just mentioned from the perspective that it's God punishing the worlds with plagues and with death. Right. I mean, that's, let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. Okay. So, so that's blasphemy. That is blaspheming the name of the Lord. And we're going to get to it, but there's a passages of Scripture where when these plagues come upon the people, it says that they blaspheme the name of God. And they repent not. They don't glorify God. What is it to glorify God? We, we don't even understand what these things mean, yet we've been believers our whole lives. And we want to do good. We do. We want to be filled with life. We want to see God manifest, but we don't understand God. And it's okay because God is bringing an end to the ignorance, right? He is. I promise he is. I'm not this smart. I'm not smart enough to know these things. It's only by God. And it's not just me. There's people all over the earth. The Spirit is moving as the Spirit wills because the Spirit is done with the blindness and the ignorance in the church. And the Spirit began moving many years ago, I say many, probably about 15 years ago, to restore Christ as the head of the church. So we can begin to be fed with nutrients from Christ the head. And what's happening now is the church is going to come into the knowledge of the Son of God. Right? And we're going to start understanding God properly. And we're going to start understanding ourselves properly. That's when we'll be able to be the salt and the light in the earth. Because right now the church is in the earth thinking to be the salt and the light is to condemn the people that are dead. They're already dead. Your condemnation isn't going to make them more dead. And so the way you heal someone who's dead is you come and tell them about the guy that doesn't want them to die. And you come and tell them about the guy that has a life in himself that overcomes death in the flesh. And you come and tell them that this God is grieved in his heart at their suffering. And that he's come in the body to heal them from death. Right? And that's how you call them out of the grave. If we see people busy with the fruit of, the, of death, it's because they're dead. Right? Yeah. Let's not be surprised that dead people have the fruit of death. Right. 
And if they're dead, let's see that what they need is to hear the word of life. Amen. Right? And if they reject the word of life and say they're not dead, then you can tell them this is the fruit of death. That's right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. You see? So to glory, glorify God is to proclaim the truth about who God really is. The goodness of God. Yeah. It says that Abraham didn't consider the deadness in his flesh or the deadness in Sarah's womb, but he glorified God. What that meant is, is he looked to God to serve him with life. He said God can overcome death in the flesh. Right? Also said Noah found grace in that. Noah found grace. Noah saw God's eyes were full of grace. So, John's looking at the, the scroll, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all wrapped up and scrolled up. Who can open it? He's very distraught. <laughs> Who can open the seal? Who can release it into the earth? To open the seals would be to release the testimony of Jesus Christ into the earth. That's what it would be. So Revelation 6, 1 says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. Okay, so when the, when the Lamb opened up that seal, it was the releasing of the testimony of Jesus Christ. It was the unveiling of the spirit of prophecy into the earth. It was the releasing of the spirit of prophecy into the earth. Jesus is called the spirit of prophecy in the book of Revelation. And that says the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Do you know what it means to prophesy? We think we know what it means, but Paul said we having the same spirit of faith as God had are calling people forth out of the darkness into the light. And so God prophesies to bring about his eternal purpose. And so the releasing of the seals, the opening of the scroll, is God prophesying. It's God himself talking. And the testimony that's coming out of his mouth is the word that was made flesh in Jesus Christ. Okay? You can say a lot of things about that. The testimony of Jesus Christ is his judgment. The testimony of Jesus Christ is his judgment. Again, back to the dictionary of your own hearts. You guys have already decided what that word judgment means. Judgment. And most of you think Guilty. it means something like condemnation. Most of you think it means something like condemnation. Back to, you don't get to decide. <laughs> Your opinion has no seat here. My opinion has no seat here. This is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so you need to ask yourself, what does Jesus Christ say about his judgment? Because he's got a lot to say about it. If you don't know, you can go read the Gospel of John. You know what Jesus says? The Father judges no one. That's right. That's right. But has committed all judgment into my hands. That's right. Oh, guess what? Then he goes on to say, and I don't judge anyone. That's right. That's right. <laughs> he says, there's one that will judge. Even the word that I have spoken. That's it. And so the judgment of Jesus is he came into the earth to issue a decree. Not for or against someone. He issued a decree because he was for all people. The only reason he came into the earth to issue this decree is because he wanted to open people's eyes to the goodness of God as their father. That's the only reason why he did it. So this is Jesus' judgment. This is his decree. His decree is against the gods of this world, which is the works of your own hands, which is Babylon. That's his decree. And what his decree is, is that God... Eternal life is found in calling God Father. 
God's the only one that has life. He's the only one that has life. The gods of this world, the strength in your own hands, they can't give you life. The only thing they can give you is death. The only one who has life in himself to give is the Father. Jesus even said that he didn't come speaking of himself, but he came speaking of the Father. And he said the Father gave him a commandment, and he said this commandment is everlasting life. Now, how does that jive with our definition of the word commandment? How do you command everlasting life? Because we think of command as an order you give somebody to perform. Well, how do you command someone to perform everlasting life? You call it forth in people, and the way you call it forth in people is you tell them that you're there to be the father of their life. Right? You're there to serve them with life. You're there to clothe upon their nakedness. Jesus said in John 17, glorify me and it will glorify you. Clothe upon my nakedness. The whole world will see me naked and nailed to the tree. Show up in the midst of the great congregation and clothe upon my nakedness, and that will reveal you as the father that the world needs. That's his judgment. Amen. That's his judgment. And at the cross, he's revealing to the world, do you see this death I'm dying right now? This is what the gods of this world will give you. This is what trusting in the works of your own hands will pay you with. That's his judgment. So he's judging the way that's unto life, and he's judging the way that's unto death. That's, what he, that's his judgment. He's laying it out for everybody because he's not willing that any should perish. Okay? You guys following this so far? So his judgment is more like an explanation? You could say it that way. It's a decree. It's an edict. It's the truth. He come declaring the truth. Paul would say it this way. The wages of sin is death. The gift God has in his hand to give is eternal life. That word sin there is not talking about bad behavior. Paul uses works of the flesh and fruit of death to describe bad behavior, if we want to call it that. The wages of trusting in your own strength for life is death. That means the, the pay, the wage your hand has to serve you with, if you put it to work to inherit eternal life, it will pay you with death. Whose hand will pay you with death? Whose hand will pay you with death? Okay, then how come we say God's hand will? Blasphemy. When the exactly you blaspheme the name of God. We struggle to weigh the scriptures and the contradictions, and then wrestle with God. Don't be afraid of the contradictions. The tension is good. We we get so upset if we think there's tension. Go get with God and recognize the tension. But the Gospel of James, James said, only good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in heaven. He goes on to continue to describe it. In whom there is no shadow or variableness of turning. No shadow of turning or variableness. Okay, now go wrestle with that. Go wrestle with that. So this is the judgment of Jesus we're talking about. Right? Now Jesus lays bare everything. So when his judgment is released, her, his edict or his testimony is released, it lays everything bare. There's nothing that can hide anymore. Everything that is what it is, is going to be made manifest. Like we talked about last night. That's why you see uh, Jesus when he walked by people who were demonized. What happened? They just came out, didn't they? He didn't have to try to make them come out. Just in his presence, they came out. So let me tell you this real quick. If there's death and sin in this world, 
And it's hidden in the systems of this world, in the God of this world. In the day Jesus Christ releases his testimony in this earth, unabashed, those things are coming out. And that don't mean they come from the hand of God. It means they were already here and they can't hide. And if you can't say God gave those people the demons that manifested when Jesus walked by, then neither can you say God gave the plagues that manifested when Jesus released his testimony into the earth. And if you do, you got a big contradiction. You got a big contradiction. Right? Most people don't recognize all the contradictions they have in their theology. Well, thank God we can be saved even if we can't recognize them. But that's no excuse to dwell in ignorance if we don't have to. Right? And so you'd be well served to recognize contradictions and not blow them off or pretend like they're not there to continue in your theology. Because most of us don't want to question our theology. We find comfort in our theology instead of God's love. And so the moment somebody comes tearing up our theology, no, 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 I already have my boxes. Mm. I already have my boxes. Nobody had more boxes than me. I love that you said that. I had all my boxes lined up. I'd been to Bible college. I had stu- Listen, you guys, I've read the Talmud like 10 times. I've read ancient Jewish rabbis. I thought I knew something. And you know what? I really thought I knew something. (laughs) And most people, since I'm speaking as a fool, most people would say, you did, you knew something. You know what God showed up and told me? Throw everything you think you know in the garbage can. It's done. My boxes. Hey, I love my boxes so much, I was depressed for like 18 months. I'm just being honest. Because everything that, I I built my life on my boxes instead of the God of all glory. Mm -hmm. And the moment the boxes were gone, I thought I was on shaky ground. Mm -hmm. And looking back now, I see I wasn't on shaky ground. I was actually standing on the rock. Right? But I was looking at the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. It's like when you're on a boat that's deep in the ocean and they tell you to find, is it a plumb line? Mm -hmm. They tell you to find, don't look at the the waves. Look at the the horizon. Yeah, horizon. Yeah. Okay. Does that make sense? So the seal's open. Does everybody understand what's being released there now? The testimony of Jesus Christ. The same judgment Jesus brought into the earth in the Gospel of John, in his cross, in his resurrection. The same testimony about what brings death and what brings life. That word is being released into the earth right now. And it's going to lay everything bare for what it is. Right? The world looks good for food, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Let's just be honest. You can look around the world right now and see a lot of things that look beautiful. And they look wise. They look like they can serve you with the life that you need. In fact, we're after a whole lot of things in this world that we think can give us the life that we need. You know what that sounds like? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm -hmm. And so what's going to happen is the things in this world, the gold and the silver and the fine linens and the cinnamons and the spices of Babylon, which is the world system, They don't actually look good. They're actually full of plagues. They're full of death. I hope I don't, uh, well, if I offend you, just pray for me. (laughs) This is a good example of what I'm talking about. When I was a little kid, I was disturbed. And um, I watched lots of horror movies Mm -hmm. and engaged in lots of dark things because I was disturbed. One of the movies I love to watch, I read because I read the book, was The Shining mm-hmm. with Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Well, there's a scene in The Shining where Jack walks into room 207. And he walks in there, and there's a beautiful woman there. Seemingly. 
Yeah. And he's like, wow. And so he walks over there and he starts kissing her. And as he's kissing the seemingly beautiful woman, all of a sudden she turns into a corpse mm -hmm. while he's kissing her. And she was a corpse the whole time. Mm. Yep. Okay? So we're, we're in a world that's filled with corruptible things. But we many times look at them and think that they're full of life. Mm -hmm. They're not. <laughs> they're not full of life. Yeah. Right? And so the testimony of Jesus is going to lay these things bare. All right, so we pick up. I'm going to read a bunch of verses. Revelation will begin with chapter 6, verse 2. We'll, we'll pick it up. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, I was always taught that that's God. God sent the horsemen. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was death. And hell followed with him. I just want to stop right there. What does God throw into the lake of fire in Revelation 20? But I thought that horseman came from God. So the horseman God sent to destroy, he destroys at the end? God did so. Hmm. I'm, I'm just saying. I mean, I'm just reading the verses. Right? We confuse God declaring the truth, and then the things that were hidden manifesting with him producing them. Mm -hmm. that's, what, that's our problem. Mm -hmm. And so God can come and say, these gods don't have life in their hand, they have death. And should God say that, those gods and the death they have will be made manifest. But that don't mean God's the one who fathered it. No. <laughs> okay? Yeah. And, and, and I looked, and behold, a pair of horse, and his name that sat on him was death in hell. You know, the scripture says that death is the enemy of God. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus, I said this last night, but Jesus said, when they accused Jesus of casting out the devil by the power of the devil, he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I can't be the one who casts out the devil and the one that gives the devil. God can't be the one that heals from death and the one that fathers the death. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Amen. If he's coming in the end to cast death and hell into the lake of fire, then he's not the one fathering death and hell in the earth. Right. You guys following me? Mm -hmm. yeah. Blasphemy indeed. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. I'll just read, it's 2014 for those of you that want to know. If you want to write it down, Revelation 2014. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is the second death. Is everybody following? Is everybody with me? 
So the decree of Jesus' testimony revealed these four horsemen. Yeah, and we'll get we'll, we're going to keep building on it, but like I said, it's not all chronological. But if you get to, towards the end of Revelation, it talks about Gog and Magog being gathered from having been scattered, right? This is tying into that at the end. This is, you know, Daniel talked about the prince of Persia and the inhabitants of this earth. He's talking about demonic entities. They're being gathered to come to war with the light, right? And this is part of them gathering up the totality of their death, right? This is part of the death that's in the world welling up for the fight. They're in the locker room putting on their stuff, right? And the, the, the prince of this world has now been let loose. Not sent, but the world has been let to have what it wanted all along. And now the prince of this world is welling up all the death and plague that he has in himself. And that's what this is the beginning of. Okay? Um, he talks about the horses. I'll, I'll jump ahead to the horses. If you read in the Old Testament, and I think I said this a little bit last night, there's literally hundreds of verses that talk about horses with connection to Egypt and Babylon. Hundreds of verses. And it's not just like the nation Egypt or the nation Babylon. It's talking about the wisdom of the world is what it demonstrates there. And horses were a warlike symbol, right? And so they were a warlike symbol, but in the Old Testament, they were known in the Hebraic mindset as representing worldly power. They were known in the Hebraic mindset to represent the strength that was in the world, the strength that was in man's hand. They represented carnal strength. They represented trusting in the strength of the flesh. God talked to Israel about trusting in horses, trusting in chariots. He wasn't talking about real horses and chariots. He was talking about them worshiping the strength that was in the world. He was talking about them worshiping the strength in their own hand. He was talking about them going a-whoring after the gods of Babylon. Okay? You guys following that? Yeah. We'll read some verses. Deuteronomy 17, 16. Deuteronomy 17, 16. This is all about horses. I'm going to read through a bunch of them. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. That's the first one. I just wrote down a few. There's a bunch. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You see how it's comparing two strengths? Two things you're trusting in? Right? We just talked about four horsemen. Gog and Magog, just so you guys know, do you know what Gog and Magog were? Gog and Magog were a tribe of mighty horsemen that were known for being mighty horsemen and mighty with the bow. That's what they were known for. Well, the first horseman that comes with the what? A bow. Yep. Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Esau sold his birthright for one morsel of meat. What was his birthright? The blessing of the firstborn. It wasn't just he was born first. The blessing of the firstborn is the blessing that comes from the firstborn from the dead, Jesus Christ. And Esau exchanged the blessing he could have from the Christ for the life he could gain from the strength of his flesh, one morsel of meat. Psalm 33, 17. 
A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. So these horsemen that are now all of a sudden appearing into the earth, these are the very things that the inhabitants in the earth were worshiping for life. And now the thing that you've been calling upon for life is now coming into the earth. And you're going to see they don't have life to give. And what you're going to see they have to give is a plague. Those horsemen have the plague, not God. Woe to those, Isaiah 31.1. Isaiah 31.1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and then in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. These horsemen are representing the gods of this world that people are looking to for life. They're already here. They didn't all of a sudden come. They just became revealed. Right? I mean, we just saw a plague. I mean, didn't we just see COVID? Okay. This scripture, uh, real quick, uh, where Jesus says several times, he says, For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly along the lines of what we're talking about. And there's a bunch of other ones. So if he opens the seal, that's his revelation of what's already there. That's right. Yeah. It's revealing what's here. Mm-hmm. And it's revealing that the wisdom of the world, Amen. the gods of this world, don't have life to give. Wow. Yeah. That's the, it's, it's revealing that. That's part of the revelation. It's the light on the... And at the end, we'll the see, at the light end light. you'll see also the part of re- the revelation of Jesus Christ is that the gift of God is eternal life because that's what manifests at the end. So it's the same revelation he brought into the earth to begin with, is that the wages of trusting in your own works for life is death. The gift God has to give is eternal life. That's laid bare throughout the book of Revelation. Right? That's a simplistic way of saying it. We get caught and wrapped up in the minutia and we miss the, the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 30, verse 16, you said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee, you said. We will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. Psalm 20, verse 6 through 8. Now I know that the Lord will help his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories by his right hand. Some take pride in chariots and some in horses. But our pride is in the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall. But we shall rise and stand upright. So here come these horsemen manifesting their plagues in the earth. And ultimately, they're manifesting in the earth to fall. John's excited. He's upset when the seal won't be opened. Who can open the seal? He's not like stressed out about it. He's like, in his mind, the releasing of the seal is going to comfort those who mourn. And those who've been oppressed. He sees it as the deliverance of earth from the prince of this world. He sees the opening of the seals as the light coming to divide asunder the darkness. That's how he interprets the opening of the seals. And so John is like, yes, who can open it up? Salvation is found in the seals. 
Open it up, Lord. Let the darkness be removed. Let the death be consumed. Let the gods of this world be brought out in the open and let them be destroyed. Death. Let death be destroyed. I, Psalm 147.10. If I don't say this many verses, people won't believe me. People won't believe me anyway, but it's okay. I don't preach for people to believe. I preach to believe me. I preach because it's the truth. <laughs> the burden of persuasion is in God's hands. That's right. Psalm 147.10. He delights not in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. You see all that? Remember I talked to, I just mentioned it briefly. You guys were great last night. You guys were following me. It has to be the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember last night I talked about the song of Moses? Remember last night we mentioned the song of Moses? Do you guys remember what the song of Moses says? What's thrown into the sea? The horse and riders. What's mentioned in Revelation 6? The horse and riders. All right, now, Revelation 15, verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. That Thou art our, our only are holy means thou art the only one that is set apart unto life. Thou art the only one that has no death in him. Thou art the only one that's set apart to serving people with life. The horse and its rider told us they were set apart unto serving us with life, but they are not set apart unto serving us with life. They are set apart unto serving us with death. They are defiled. They are unclean. And now they're singing the song of Moses in Revelation 15 because they're rejoicing in God throwing the horse and its rider into the sea. Oh, but the horseman, you know, that's God sending it. Listen, I, I tell God, I'm like, how did I ever believe that? Because it's like, when you stop and look, it's like, how did I believe that? It's so clear that it's the opposite. It's so clear that it's the opposite. You guys follow me? Yeah. So this is the battle. Remember we talked about the war last night. The war is not talking about physical nations. Now there could be a physical response in the earth as these spiritual things start going. So I'm not telling you it means there's no physical calamity that's going to manifest because all heck is going to break loose and who knows what will happen. But that's not the point it's making. The war is not about physical nations. The war is about the princes of this world, like the prince of Persia, right, that is talked about in Daniel. It's talking about the prince of this world and his demons and his demonic angels rising up with all their plagues and all their death to destroy creation. Just like they welled up with everything they had to try to destroy the creator, the Lord Jesus. And so they're welling up, four corners from four winds, the horsemen, they're coming. Revelation 28. And shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, 
Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Now, I just wanted to touch on this again because we're in the context of the horses. But as I just said, God, Gog and Magog, when you go and study um, what those people were, just anthropologically, right, in the history of their nation, the way they're described is skilled horsemen and experts in the use of the bow, which is exactly how the first horseman is described. He comes with a bow, right? He comes with a bow. <clears throat> The people of Magog, they weren't just skilled horsemen, but they were seen to travel the land in a gigantic cavalry of horses. They were nomadic. And they would pillage as skilled horsemen with bows. Okay? Ezekiel 38.15 says, And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. Ezekiel 38, 16 says, And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days, and I will bring thee against my land that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O God, before their eyes. You see what he's saying? I'm going to bring you out in the open, Gog. Are you going to manifest in the earth and you're going to look, what did I say last night? Like a bad ASS. I won't say it again tonight. You guys got enough of my potty mouth last night. Badass. So Gog, what he's saying is, I'm going to bring you out, Gog, in the midst of the great congregation. And you're going to look strong like you a bad mamma jamma. <laughs> and then I'm going to sanctify my name in the heathen through you because I'm going to conquer you and make you look like nothing. This is exactly what happened at the cross. God's name was sanctified in the devil bringing his death up on Jesus because we saw that God is a bad dude. Because we saw that the life of God conquers death even in the flesh. I mean, that dude was dead dead. That dude was in the grave three days. And then that dude came out of the grave in a physical body that had that death removed, never to be able to die again. I love how Ezekiel, God says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Yeah. Ezekiel's like, this sounds like a trick question. <laughs> no, I don't think they can. How can they? But you know, Lord, I know enough about you that do. you're the one that knows. Do you know, Adam, God promised Adam immortality before the fall of the world. But when Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and death manifested in his body, death became his God. And he thought death was greater than the promise of God. And he thought the death that manifested in his body made the promise void. He thought that it disannulled the promise of life. He thought death was greater than life. And all of mankind thought that. That's why we were all the time trying to give ourselves life. We thought God abandoned us in the earth and we thought death was greater than his promise. That's why God kept reaffirming the promise. He reaffirms it through Abraham. He reaffirms it again through Israel. And then he finally brings the promise of immortality to light, Paul says, through the man Jesus Christ. And not just bringing it to light, but proving the promise of life is greater than death. Even death in the flesh. He sanctified us through God. 
Because God, death, manifested at the cross, came upon the Christ, and the life of the Christ stood up, having conquered death. Now God is sanctified. Right? You see that? Here's, here's talking about Gog and Magog again. Ezekiel 39, verse 1. And I'm reading these because it connects to the horsemen. And I want to give you guys a lot of scripture. Because last night, I go so fast, people are like, did he quote any scriptures? Literally, I quoted probably like 300 scriptures last night. But I'm just going, right? I'm not stopping. Well, turn in your Bibles to... Listen, there's nothing wrong with someone saying you turn in your Bibles. But if you have to have somebody say that to you for you to think they're talking scripture, I'm just going to say it like it is. And I'm not going to say it to condemn you. I'm going to say it in a funny way. That's a sin. <laughs> right? Because it's not about quoting chapters and verses. It's about quoting the word or the spirit that's contained in the scriptures. And if you're going to eliminate a person because you don't hear them quoting chapters and verses, listen, you might want to ask the Lord about that because they may be speaking the most anointed thing you ever heard. I had a person once message me in a two and a half minute video that I did, a small clip. He said, you didn't quote any verses. I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> I'm, I, I know enough that I'm a man and I'm not God that I thought, well, let me go check, mm. right? Because I do want people to know what I'm saying is the truth. I went and listened to that two and a half minutes. I quoted 75 verses in, 25, in two and a half minutes. I just didn't say chapter and verse. I was bouncing, right? Mm. Don't let our American culture shape what you think, mm. right? That's the point I want to make. Ezekiel 39.1, Therefore, thou son of man, prophesy against God. And say, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O God. The chief. See, notice God saying he's against God. Right. We all see that easily at the end of Revelation, but I'm connecting God to the horsemen. And I will turn thee back and leave but the sixth part of thee, and will call thee to come up from the north parts, and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. And I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand, and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. What does the first horseman come with? A bow. What does God say he will do? Smite the bow out of his hand. Mm -hmm. This all happens at the end when Gog and Magog gather from the four corners. Right? For the war of death against life. Right? When Jesus is coming on a white horse. Right? Is everybody still with me? Yes. You guys are awesome. You love the scriptures. I don't get to sit with many people many times that want to talk the scriptures so much. I said this last night, but the war that's coming, that Revelation is actually talking about, the ultimate war is the war of death against life, yes. light against darkness. Yes. It's throughout all of the scriptures. It happened at the cross. The cross is actually a picture of the war happening. It's a picture of the war that's going to happen in Revelation. It's a precursor. Revelation or Genesis, where the light entered the earth in the midst of the darkness and it divided asunder the light or the darkness. That's what it means, it divided asunder. Jesus comes back on a white horse. We say, well, why is Jesus on a horse? Because a horse is also a symbol of a war. It's a wartime symbol. So the death in the world has mounted up their Calvary and they're coming to destroy creation. Well, whose creation do you think that it is? It's God's. 
And I promise you, he's not going to let death swallow up his creation. So here comes Jesus because it's wartime. And he's coming on a white horse. And he's clothed in a vesture dipped in blood. And it says the word of God. What word? The word that was made flesh. The light that entered the earth in Genesis. The light that entered the earth when John said the word was made flesh. The light that manifested inside of human flesh when Jesus came out of the grave. And this Jesus is coming with a sword. But it's not a sword like a human sword. He's not coming with the sword like Peter came with. It's not a sword like the world that he comes with. He doesn't come to slice people up with the physical sword. It says a sword comes out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The sword of the spirit. He doesn't come to slay people like we think he comes to slay. And he's coming to slay death. That's what he's coming to slay. And the sword of the spirit that's coming out of his mouth, that sword, do you know what it's saying? Let there be light. Because do you know what's going to conquer darkness? Light. And the light is God's life. You know what's going to cast death and hell into the lake of fire? The fire of God's life. That fire is the light that entered the world in Genesis when God said, let there be light. And so he comes to divide, asunder, to remove the death in the darkness. I'm going to jump to the end here so I can just look at this. Hosea 13, verse 14, talks about the vengeance of God. It talks about what the vengeance of God is against. I'll just read it real quick so I, I get the words exactly right. It's powerful. It's powerful when you start to see what God's against. Mm-hmm. You start realizing he's against the same thing you're against. Yeah. And you start realizing this dude's my friend. Mm-hmm. And what a friend to have, a dude that can conquer death. You know what I'm saying? When you realize you have a friend that can conquer death, do you know what kind of boldness you're filled with? Mm-hmm. You don't look at death like it can do something to you. You start walking around like a man possessed with the life that makes death bow down. Mm-hmm. Right? And you know what will happen? Death will start bowing down. Mm-hmm. You will start to see people coming out of the grave clothes. You will start to be people hailed in the name of Jesus. You'll start to see people healed from fear. You'll start to see people's flesh put to rest. You'll start to see people healed from murdering and gossiping and backbiting and envying and all those different kinds of things. You'll see people's flesh healed. Yep. Hallelujah. This is Hosea 13:14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plague. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from my eyes. This verse finds its fulfillment in Jesus coming on the white horse. And the plague of death has welled up in the earth like it's something Because the darkness doesn't comprehend the light. We talked about that, remember? Mm -hmm. The darkness doesn't comprehend the light. And so the darkness is coming to overtake the light. Is one of the meanings of that that word, that definition. Right? Mm -hmm. But here comes Jesus on a white horse to bring a plague to death. Right? And the sword of the Spirit comes out of his mouth. Now I can't guarantee you this is what he says. I know it's let there be light. Because I see the spirit of prophecy. But it wouldn't surprise me if those of us riding with him are quoting Hosea 13. He will ransom us from the power of the grave. He will redeem us from death. Oh, death, God will be your plague. Oh, grave, God is your destruction. Repentance will be far from his eyes. (laughs) What does a sword do? It divides something. It separates it. 
It comes and divides and then separates asunder. It says a sword is coming out of his mouth. That's the sword he has. But we read our own definition of what a sword is. We think he comes slaying the people. You ever read the account of Gideon? Does everybody know the account of Gideon with the Midianites? Remember Gideon had like 10,000 people? That's where they get yeah. the movie 300. Yeah. And God's like, no, 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 bro. Wheedle it down. Instead, he gets it down. I don't know the exact numbers. He gets it down to like 5,000, then 1,000. And then he gets it down to 300. He's like, we're going to go into the Midianites camp with the 300 people? He's like, oh, yeah, and don't bring no swords. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> don't bring no swords. That's how the world wages a war. Don't bring no shields. You're going to take an earthen vessel. And you're going to take an earthen vessel with the light, a candle in it. And you're going to bring trumpets. <laughs> and then you're going to go into the Midianites' camp. And you're going to smash the earthen vessel on the ground. And then you're going to blow the trumpet. <laughs> now listen, guys. Jesus is the light that is in the earthen vessel. Right. And his body was broken. And when his body was broken, do you know what it released? A life that conquers death. And so do you know what happened when they, when they threw the earthen vessel, they smashed it, and they blew the trumpet? The Midianites, it says, took their swords to one another. Mm-hmm. So who killed them, God? Or is there blood on their own hands? I, listen, guys, I don't know why we want to put blood on God's hands. I, I mean, I do. It's the carnal mind. Right when God asked Adam, did you eat from that tree? Do you know what he said? It's that woman you gave me. So he blamed God, and he blamed the woman. He could have just as easily said, yes, Lord, I did eat from the tree. Eve ate. She entered into darkness. I didn't know what to do. I didn't call upon you. He could have just copped to it, right? I sinned, bro. I sinned, God. Here I am. But he blamed God and he blamed the woman. That's the carnal mind. Man brings forth death in the earth and then we blame God. That's the mind of the thief. The thief gets it right. The serpent gets it right to serve people with death and then convince people it's God. He does it all the time. I mean, even in my insurance policy for my house, Mm -hmm. there's a clause for acts of God. Did God defile this earth? Did God bring the wisdom of the world into this earth? Did God bring sin into this earth? Did God sell the earth to the serpent? Well, then... What serves with death? Sin or God? Does sin need any help from God to serve with death? Is it God that gives an assist? I was a basketball player, and they got a stat called an assist. And so if you pass the ball to the guy that scored, you got an assist because you help him score. I don't know if we realize it, but we got God as assisting sin to serve people with death. Sin don't need no help from God to serve people with death. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. Okay, let me back up. Are you guys still with me? You got endurance? I do have one question. If you don't mind. Um, I know you said the white horse. So Revelation 6 mm-hmm. talks about the white horse. Mm-hmm. And then Revelation 19. The man of peace. The white horse. Yeah, he comes acting as if he's the man of peace and he's not. So that's the horse. like the... Um, angel of light kind of thing they come masquerading as an angel of light 
But when it gets to Jesus, the only reason he's on a horse is because a horse is also a symbol of wartime. Right? It's a symbol of wartime. And Gog and Magog have just rounded up the Calvary to wage war. And so he comes on a horse because it's a symbol of a war that's about to go down. Right? Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. No, I have a, actually have a question. I'm curious. Um, I think the answer to why do people put death on God is really simple. Because of the Bible. Well, maybe. I mean, the Old Testament especially, you know. So you've got God opening up the earth to swallow people. You've got God flooding it. You've got, even in the New Testament, you've got God, uh, you know, sending an angel to strike Herod dead. Um, so most of the people that I talk to, that's what, because, I mean, I know it's sin that serves with death and the consequences of walking in your own way. But most of the people I talk to, they're ish, they're, they believe God's bloodthirsty because of the Bible. Yeah. So what makes them think that God's the one that caused the death? Because just because a, a death occurs. Like, you mentioned the flood. We'll just use the flood. Well, because of how it's written. Because it says, then God. Right. Or like, even with Saul, then the Lord, an evil spirit from the Lord came yeah. Saul. Well, even the way you, like that. But even if you look at that in the Hebrew, it doesn't say that the evil spirit came from God. That's not I how know. it reads. <laughs> but the way the way it's written, so like the angel of the Lord struck Herod dead and worms came out. And what is it? Right. And so that requires tension or wrestling is right. the right word. Midrash. So again, back to the definition in our hearts. We already decide what it means that the angel smote Herod. Right. And or, we decide. Or Ananias and Sapphira. Well, Ananias is, again, it's not clear. It doesn't say God struck them dead. No, but it is kind of clear if you read it. It says Satan was Satan in their heart. their hearts, exactly. Right. Um, but hold on, the flood. We'll just take the flood as an example. We talked about that a lot last night. Yeah. If you read in Peter, Peter says that the flood saved Noah in the age. Right. It says they were saved by the flood. That's right. And so the flood was meant to cleanse the earth from death. And Noah was building the ark to tell the people about God's righteousness to save them from their suffering. And anybody could have gotten on the ark. But they loved the darkness more than the light, like John says. They stood in condemnation already. right? So God cleansing the earth from sin and death is not God killing people. Did those people have life? Or were they standing in dead and sin already? They're already dead in sin. Paul says they're dead in sin in Ephesians. So that's just one example. And what I would say about the Old Testament is, like I said in the beginning about the Proverbs, they're dark sayings of old. That's right. And what that means is they're a shadow. And so that means there's something hidden there. Paul, if you look in the New Testament, just search the word mystery. It pops up like 30-something times. Paul talks about the mystery that was hidden from the ages. Proverbs, is it 26, that says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter? It's the glory of kings to search a matter out? Right, And so what I want to say is that there's a tension in the scriptures that requires dancing with God. And if you read the scriptures from the perspective of the carnal mind, which Paul called the letter, then you're not going to see the spirit that's written there. Mm -hmm. And if you don't weigh the scriptures with the Lord Jesus and use Jesus to interpret them, you're going to come out with it the wrong way. Like Saul came out with it. Right? And so when I say, why do they read it that way? 
The reason why I say that is because I just read a whole lot of verses that say the opposite. And there's a whole lot of verses that say the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. Right? You can just look at, like I said, with James. Uh, John said, God is love. And he says there's nothing to be afraid of in love. Right? Right? Do you see Jesus killing anybody? Is Jesus the word about God? Well, this is all... I agree with you, but I'm dealing with on a really massive scale right now um, because of the Roe versus Wade thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. People are like, oh, so you worship the God that commanded Israel to dash the infant's heads on the rocks? Then how come you're not pro-killing bait? You know, it, it just can go forever. Um, and these are good questions. They're really good questions. But some of that stuff you read, and it's like, I mean, most, most of the friends that I used to run with and preach with at this point, they denounce the entire Old Testament. They, they don't even believe it anymore because they can't reconcile it. I definitely do not denounce the Old Testament, but um, a lot of them do. And, you know, it's different forms of antinomianism, Pelagianism, all these things invading. It's crazy, but Gnosticism. Um, so I really, this is this is awesome. And I have a, I, I love the whole view of Revelation like this. It's awesome. It's, it's cracking it open. It's making so much sense, um, but but I'm just thinking about the reason so many people that I talk to, yeah, they attribute it to God because of the Bible, because of the Old Testament, because of reading it with a carnal mind, like you're saying. Um, right, but it, is that because of the Bible? Or is it because of the carnal mind? Carnal mind. It's well, obviously, it's the carnal mind, but it's like. Well, let me ask you, you this: want to say something like, "Well, God probably could have." inspired it to be written differently so it didn't make him look not, like the not if it's supposed to be a dark saying and you have <laughs> right. to seek him to read it <laughs> right oh. yeah so what I what I would ask you is do you think Jesus read that and thought that it was God that killed all those people how did Jesus read the Old Testament because listen I understand what you're saying and through the course of me having the church all these years, I've actually explained probably 90% so far of the Old Testament accounts that sound like God is the author of the death, and it's pretty clear that he's not. We're going to get into one of them tonight if we have time. We're going to go to the Exodus, which looks like or all of it. Looks like God's the one killing the people. And if you read the text, it, that's not what it says, actually. And if you weigh the text, like Paul talked about, rightly dividing the word of truth, you would come to that conclusion. I've also done it with Sodom and Gomorrah. I've done it with the flood. I've done it with the exodus. I've done it with Gideon. I've done it with like 90% of them. What I found was, even in doing it with 90% of them, where I could theologically prove it with the scriptures, it never convinced anyone. And so, I don't say I won't get the other 10%, but I stopped, I, I stopped spending my time trying to prove the 10% sure. that I hadn't, I hadn't seen yet, yeah. right? But what I would say is so far I found an answer every single time, mm-hmm. right, that fits. Like, God, this is just an example. You have to weigh the dynamic. When God had Moses come up the mountain, and Moses wanted to see his glory, and God said, you can't see my glory or you're going to die. Did God want Moses to die? No. Well, would Moses have died? That's why he hit him. But what if Moses had seen God and God didn't want him to die? Would he still have died? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So who's to blame for the death there? God? Right. 
It, it, it happens again in, in the Exodus when he tells Moses to put a barrier around the mountain. And he says, tell the people not to run up to the mountain, lest I break forth on them. Right. He, he's clearly describing a dynamic where he doesn't want the people to die. And even if he doesn't want them to die, there's a dynamic going on where they would die. Right. And so th there's a lot of things I could say. And you could spend time with people arguing about it, and you might have better luck than me, but I found it to be unprofitable. And what I mean by that is until a person comes to the place where they realize Jesus is the word of God, they're never going to be convinced. I'm with you. I'm never going to throw out any scriptures. I, I'm too, what do I want to say? I know I'm fallible man. And what that means is I'm going to err to the side of I just don't see it yet. That's right. I'm not going to get rid of it to try to reconcile Amen. my view of God. Yes. Because I know Jesus is the word of Amen. God. Yes. And I'm going to keep walking in that truth and have everything else illuminated. That's right. right. But if I have to throw things out to find reconciliation, I'm not really trusting God. I'm trusting my own Amen. intellectual Amen. understanding. Amen. That's right. Right? And through the course of it, and I got a whole series on Sodom and Gomorrah. I got a whole series on the Exodus. I got several series on the flood. And you'd be shocked what's written in the scriptures if you actually stop and say, wait a second, Jesus is the word made flesh. What word? The word that was from the beginning, yes, but the same word that's in the Old Testament scriptures. It was made flesh in Jesus. And so if I can't find what I think I read in the Old Testament in Jesus, that means I'm misunderstanding That's something. Right. Right. And I'm perfectly okay with saying right. I'm misunderstanding it. Yeah. And if somebody yeah. wants to come to me with that example, that's one of the one, the 10%. I hadn't had time to sort one out yet, that one you mentioned. And I hadn't spent a bunch of time trying to. But I'm perfectly okay saying I don't know how to interpret that right that's now. Right. But I know that Jesus is the exact representation of that's God. Right. He's the express image and the brightness of his glory. Yes. He is God in the flesh. He's Emmanuel. And if I don't see it in him, then that tells me I'm misunderstanding what's written there. But I don't know how to explain Amen. that. And I'm okay saying yeah. that, right? And if, if they want to throw out the Old Testament to their peril, I'll try to convince them why that's the wrong way. Right. But I might have to give them over to their own belief and let them come to the place where they realize that's the wrong way that's themselves. Right. Yeah. right? And that's, that's kind of where I'm at with that. Something that helped me to um, understand the Old Testament scriptures that I don't understand is something that R.C. Sproul said years ago. And he said, the Hebrew language does not have a passive verb, right. only causative. And he says, every time you see where it says God did this or God did that, there was no passive way of saying God stood by and did nothing. So it's always accredited to God doing it. Yeah. And I think that really helped me uh, to... It's in, it's in the, the same vein of letting loose. Yes. Right? Like God can't, God doesn't insist on his own way. No. And at the end of the day, if someone wants death, if they want sin, if their God is their own belly and he can't talk them out of it, he's going to let them loose to have what they want. That's right. Right? Yeah. Which is what the wrath of God is. It isn't him putting something no. on somebody. It's him letting them loose. Exactly. Right? To have what they want. That's exactly mm -hmm. right. Yeah.
But that's good if you if you if you keep studying that out and you find some answers about that one example you mentioned, I would love to hear. Because that's one of the ones that I hadn't spent a bunch of time studying. But I know there's an answer because I found an answer. It's numerous times in there, and of course they say, Thus says the Lord. But I mean I, I look at literary styles. A lot of that is uh, was military literary style because that was what the these ancient people did that way before Israel did it. Like yeah. it was already happening. <laughs> but so that's one thing. But then the only other thing yeah, I, would, that. I would ask you is when you say if I didn't see it in Jesus, what about seeing it in Jesus in Jude or Revelation, for example? Like, do you mean just when he strictly walked the earth incarnate, or do you are you including? Well, I'm including all of it, but in Jesus. Spiritual apocalyptic. Visions. But what we're re everything we're reading right now isn't Jesus killing any of these. Like people. when Jude says, you know, when the Lord Jesus comes and destroys them all with the breath of his mouth and things right. like that. It's like this apocalyptic imagery. Right, but that's what we're just discussing right yeah. now. So if Jesus comes and says the wages of sin is death, and the sin that you were busy with manifests inside of you, is he the one that served you with the death? No. Okay, then he's not the one that killed those people in the sense that we describe it. Okay. Which is everything that we're talking about right now. Right? Yeah, it is. Right? If he says the wages of sin is death, and you have rejected life, and you've trusted in the horsemen, and the horsemen pay with death, and now death manifests, just because he's the one that said it doesn't mean he's the one that gave it to you. Right? Just like he's not the one that gave the demon. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Where were we at? What time is it? Is it 8.20? Yeah. Do you guys want to keep going? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got no curfew. You got no curfew. What did Jeremiah say? What did Jeremiah say? When we were heathens, we would stay out all night, and now that we're Christians, we're in bed by 10. <laughs> he thought, can we at least stay out till 11 and pray for some people? <laughs> Tomorrow, bring your jammies. That's right. <laughs> all right, I'm trying to remember. You were talking about the sword dividing. Yeah, so the, the, again, just like he's talking about, with the breath of his mouth. Right? And so what that means is he comes and says something. Yeah. He comes speaking. Mm -hmm. Right? And the speaking is just an unveiling of the truth. That's which right. is what? The wages of trusting in your own works for life is death. The gift God has to give is eternal life. And what manifests? The eternal life manifests because that's what God has to give and he's God. And then the death manifests because that's what the horsemen have to give. Yeah. That's what Gog and Magog have to give. That's what the prince of this world has to give. Right? We'll just jump real quick to Revelation 18. Like one of the things I look at with Jesus isn't just what I see him do when he walks the earth. But he, in, in, in John chapter, I mean it really starts building from like 7 and 8 and then 9. But Jesus says for judgment, He's coming to the earth. And then he heals the blind guy. Right. right? And he talks about making those who think they see blind and, and healing the blind. Those who think they see God were the Pharisees that just said God's the one that condemns people, to, sinners to death. Mm -hmm. 
but they were blind mm -hmm. because Jesus was God and he didn't condemn that woman to death, right. right? And he popped open her eyes. Well, immediately after that whole series where he's declaring who God is, Jesus goes on to say, it's the thief that steals, kills, and destroys. Right. Right. Now, why do you have to say that? Because they thought it was God. Then he goes on to say, but when I am come, he's not just a man there, he's God. That's John's gospel. He is God, John began with. So it's the thief that steals, kills, and destroys. I'm God. Here I am. And when I am come, I come to give you a life that superabounds over death. And so when I say, if I don't see it in Jesus, I'm not just talking about walking the earth. Although I would include that, I'm talking about what I see Jesus declaring about God. That's right. Right? And if I can't find it in what Jesus declared about God, then I'm misunderstanding how it's being expressed. And I actually like the tension. I found it's a beautiful thing for me. I used to get stressed out. I remember when we first started the church, I wanted to do a series on Romans. And I, read, I mean, Romans is a complicated thing. It, it can go back and forth. There's a lot of tension. I didn't want any tension. I just wanted to see what it said. And I used to get so angry with God about, I just want to understand what it says. Why can't I understand what it says? Why is it so hard to read what it says? You could have made it so much easier. You could have just said it plainly. And you think I'm joking. I was angry. Because I got a Bible study the next day, and I got to tell these people what this means. And I don't really want to tell them I don't know. I will if I have to, but I don't want to. They're coming to find out. In clear as day, God said to me, but Greg, then we wouldn't be able to dance, would we? <laughs> he said, you're missing the point. The point isn't just about you understanding what the verses mean. That's an intellectual exercise, Greg. And yes, you can understand what the verses mean, but it, it's more about you and me getting caught up in a dance. Like yeah. a waltz. I had a vision one time. I was a new Christian, and I was dancing with Jesus. And I thought, this is crazy. And then when I looked down, I was floating. He was doing the leading, the dancing. <laughs> he had me Carry totally. Mm. It wasn't me at all. It wasn't. Before I knew any of That's beautiful. It wasn't you at all. And so God's interested in a dance. Yeah. And I think humans are interested in just reading an algebra equation. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to dance. I don't want to weigh. I don't want to wrestle like Jacob, right? I don't want to do any of that. I want to read an algebra equation. And really what we're saying is I don't want to have to have you involved in this. I want to be able to use my own intellect, my own mind, and my own sight to read what's written there. But, I mean, Paul come and said it this way. How does a man understand the things of man save the spirit of a man that That's dwells right. in them? Right. And he goes on to say, how does a person understand the things of God save the spirit of God dwelling in them? And then he goes on to say, yea, the spirit of God searches out the deep things of God. And I think that most people are set apart under trying to read the Old Testament like an intellectual academic exercise. And they're reading it from the perspective of just a human being with their intellects, like the Pharisees, like Saul before he became Paul. Right? But you see Jesus contradict things in the Old Testament. I mean, one of the things that led me to Sodom and Gomorrah where I started actually seeing what actually happened there was that, I mean, everybody knows it's the famous account, the two disciples want to call down fire on the Samaritans. Mm -hmm. right. yeah. And it seems like the good in the right way. These people mm -hmm. rejected Jesus. Yeah. They, you think those good little Jewish boys didn't know the Old Testament? Oh, yeah. 
They had that thing committed to memory. That was like requirement. Forget about your ABCs. Forget about learning to write your alphabet. Those dudes had to learn the Old Testament. If you were a little boy, you went off to learn the Old Testament. And so those dudes were intimately acquainted with the Old Testament and fire coming down. And they had a view of what that meant. And their view looks right if you just go read it. It does. Shall we call down fire on them, Lord? And what does Jesus say? You don't know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man doesn't come to destroy. And I know you know this. I've seen enough of your ministry. So I know I'm not telling you something new, but it's, it's good for the video for anybody who watches later to draw attention. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy people's lives. He come to save them. That's right. right? Well, God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Amen. So if he didn't come to destroy lives then, is he different in the old? No. Or is he different in the future? No. Or is he the same today, tomorrow, and yesterday? No shadow of turning. So right there is a very clear-cut picture of what looks like an obvious expression in the Old Testament that Jesus reads completely differently for some reason. Right? And what I would encourage you is you can wrestle with that and ask God. Right? But until you understand, you should default to Jesus. Mm. Right? And Jesus interpreted that a different way. He's rabbi. One of those dudes that called it down was John. One of those dudes that wanted to call it down was John. And I'm on this kick a lot, but... In, in the Jewish culture, you had rabbis and you had scribes in the law. A rabbi was somebody that had the authority to interpret the law. A scribe was someone who did not have authority to interpret the law. They only had the authority to regurgitate what a rabbi had already said. They could reproduce it. Then there was something extra that they called shmika. Shmika was conveyed upon a person that they said had the authority to come with a new interpretation of the law. So when you see Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and you see him go into that whole explanation, he's explaining the law and the prophets. And it gets to chapter 7, and it says they marveled at his teaching because he taught as one having authority. And what that meant was is that he came and taught a different interpretation of the Old Testament than anyone had ever heard. And they marveled. That's why, the, that's why he said, think not that I've come to destroy the law. I've come not to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill. Now again... We're Gentiles. Everybody that was here last night is Gentiles. Mm -hmm. We read our Gentile understanding into that phrase. That's Jewish slang that Jesus said there. And more specifically, it's rabbinical slang. And what I mean by rabbinical slang is when the rabbis would come together and argue about the scriptures, which they did all the time, they liked it. Mm -hmm. I I can show you ancient Jewish rabbi, the Talmud, they're always arguing. They always got a different opinion. If one rabbi thought the other rabbi's interpretation was wrong, he would stand up and say, you're destroying the law. And then the one who came with the interpretation would say, I'm not destroying the law, I'm fulfilling it. And the fulfilling would mean to bring it to realization or to bring out what's actually there. Right? We read Jesus fulfilled the law, we think that means he performed the carnal commandments. That's not what it means. 
He didn't perform the carnal commandments. That would make him a sinner. And we'll just blow up your idea right now. He touched lepers. That was a violation of the law. He performed miracles on the Sabbath and had his disciples picking corn on the Sabbath. That was a violation of the law. He healed people on the Sabbath. It was a violation of the carnal law. And so Jesus didn't come and perform the works of the law. That's not the righteousness that's contained in the law, actually. The righteousness that's contained in the law is to be at rest in God's love for you. And Jesus fulfilled or brought to realization the word that was actually in the law about God by resting on the cross. Right? And so Jesus was bringing out of the scriptures an interpretation nobody had ever heard. That's why they said you're destroying the law. Right? That's why he said, how read you the Sabbath? Right? What did he say about the Sabbath? He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Which means the Sabbath was supposed to serve man with something. Man wasn't supposed to serve the Sabbath. Well, that's an interpretation they never heard. Another part where he talks about the Sabbath. You know what he said he sees? What I see about the Sabbath? What I see about the Sabbath is that the Father doth work. And I work also. Yeah. Do, you, do you see what he's saying about the Sabbath? Yeah. Yeah. That the Sabbath is about the work of God. That's right. It's not about you trying not to work. Right. It's about God does work. Yeah. And when you see the work of God, he never stops he never stops working. He never stops. He never stops working. Even when I can't see it, he's working. That's how Jesus interpreted the Sabbath. He didn't see it as he must rest. He sees the work of God. Well, if you see the work of God, do you know what will happen to you? You will be put to rest. So Jesus called, he, he came with an authority interpreted scriptures, and he called himself rabbi. And he didn't just call himself rabbi. And I think it's Matthew, is it 18? Or maybe it's Matthew 12. It's somewhere up in Matthew. He said, call no person master. Mm-hmm. Master doesn't mean like master and servant like we think of. It doesn't mean boss, employee. It means rabbi. Don't call anybody rabbi. Do you know what that means? Nobody has the authority to interpret the scriptures except for me. No one. And don't look at anyone's interpretation of the scriptures except for mine. I'm the only one with the authority to interpret what's in the scriptures. Okay? Well, we read the scriptures and we see God threw down fire on those people to destroy them. Well, Jesus read those scriptures and said, you don't know what spirit you're of. That's right. Do you see the tension? Okay, well, let's not be afraid of the tension. And let's see that Jesus knows better than we do. And if you want to know, ask Jesus. I don't get it, man. And he'll show you. Does that make any sense? All right, we'll finish with this, and I'll pick this up tomorrow before we talk about the mark of the beast. But Revelation 18.1. Look at Revelation. Because we're just talking about you know, he was talking about Jude and talking about how, you know, it sounds like God kills these people. Revelation 18.1. This is talking about Babylon. Mm-hmm. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power. And the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon, the great, is fallen, is fallen. And is become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, 
and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Now, so do you see what's contained in Babylon? Does that sound like a good thing? No. Does that sound like something that produces life? No. We're going to continue to read. The, the plague that was in Babylon to give, it's been revealed, is what's happening here. We're going to keep reading. But the plague that Babylon has to give is being brought out into the open. And it's actually going to say that the plague comes from her. It actually says that the plague comes from her. And so, but it talks about the gold and the silver and the fine linens. It talks about all the things that look good for food. Talk about the things in the world that look like they can feed us with life. Mm -hmm. And then it's revealing that those things are actually full of a plague. Yeah. Okay? Uh-huh. Revelation 18.3. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The wine of the wrath of her fornication. Of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sin, and that you receive not of God's plagues? Her plagues. Whose plagues? Okay. So who has the plague? Who, who had the plague in Revelation 6? The horsemen. The horsemen are part of this Babylon thing. Remember, I told you it's not chronological. This is a further elaboration of what began back there. For her sin has reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. The remembering of iniquity just means that God let her have the wage of her iniquity. He let her have what it is that her strength has to provide. And it's a plague. Reward her even as she rewarded you. And double unto her double according to God? According to her works. So according to her work, what was her work? I will be exalted by the strength of my own hand. You see it in Ezekiel, the tree that was the most beautiful tree in the midst of the garden. It looked at the beauty of its branches. And what it said was, I will exalt myself by the merchandise that I can gather to myself. It looked at the river from which it got life, God. It rejected that river and said, I will exalt myself unto life by the multitude of the merchandise I can gather to myself. Doesn't Revelation 18 talk a lot about merchants and merchandise? Merchants and merchandise? Okay. So, Babylon is a system. It's the wisdom of the world. It's the wisdom of the serpent. It's the wisdom that says, I will exalt myself unto life by gathering life to myself. There's a plague in that system. That system produces a plague. It fathers a plague. You know why there was no death in creation before Adam brought it in? Because there's no death in God. That's right. Babylon says, come let us build a life for ourselves independent independent from God. If there's no darkness in God, then how is there death in God? Is God light? Yes. Well, if he's light, is he darkness? No. Well, if he's life, is he death? No. Have you ever had, heard the phrase, listen, I, I, I worked for a finance company a long time ago, and 
Um, part of my job was to reevaluate people's credit bureaus to determine if we should just clear them, right? Because people have hard times, and our finance company was not like this brutal kind of thing, right? We would reevaluate people's credit bureaus, and if we thought, you know what, we're just wiping this thing off, who cares, right? We would wipe it away, right? But when I would talk to people that were hard on their luck, right, and they would... They didn't know that I was just going to wipe it clear. They didn't know me. They didn't know I'm Greg. They didn't know I love the Lord. They didn't know I had compassion. I'm just some dude behind a, a desk, right? And one of the things they would always say to me is, I wanted to pay. I did. But you can't get blood out of a turnip. <laughs> I know. I get it, man. I'm not trying to hold you. To, I'm going to clear your credit. I promise you. I'm going to clear it, right? Well, the, the concept there is you couldn't get blood out of a turnip because there's no blood in a turnip, <laughs> right? And to think you're going to get blood out of a turnip is insanity. Okay, well, there's, if there's no darkness in God, like John says, and there's only light in God, how are you going to get darkness out of it? If God is life and there's no death in him, we know there's no death in him because we see the Lord Jesus. Do you see any death in the Lord Jesus? No. Then how are we going to get death out of him if he doesn't have it to give? You're not. You can't. You can't get something out of God he doesn't have in himself. You can't be eternal life if you also have death. I mean, eternal life by definition is free from all death. Never to be able to die. It's not the yin and the yang. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. See her glorifying in herself? Mm -hmm. No, I'm not barren. No, I am going to be a queen and it will be by my own hand. Therefore, her plagues, whose plagues? Her. Therefore, shall her plagues come in one day. And then it describes her plagues, that which comes forth from her. Yeah. It's like a baby she's given birth to. This is what it says, that her plagues that come forth from her. Death and mourning and famine. And she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. Those are the things mentioned earlier in Revelation. The death manifesting, the plagues manifesting. Mm -hmm. And what's the judgment of the Lord God? Let there be light. And she, she gave birth to what? Death, famine, plagues, mourning. Here comes Jesus on a white horse, which is the next chapter in Revelation 19. And the sword coming out of his mouth, what does he say? Let there be light. That light is the fire of his life. And what does it do? It consumes Babylon. Not a physical nation, Babylon. The wisdom of the serpent. The kingdom of darkness. Mm -hmm. It's like if you turn on the light in here. Do you see darkness anymore? The light judges the darkness. <laughs> the light separates the darkness. Right? And we're almost done. I just want to finish up this Revelation 18. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall beware her and lament her when they shall see the smoke of her burning standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come, 
and the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. We're going to get into that with the mark of the beast. We're going to get into a lot of, of Revelation 18. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and thine wood and all manner vessels of ivory and all manner vessels of most precious wood and of brass and of iron and of marble. Do you see what it's saying it's, you're buying there? Mm -hmm. Do you know what all those things sound like? The riches of the world. Things I do you think you're buying that in a grocery store? Do you think you're buying thionine wood and ivory and precious wood? Oh, I'm sorry, I just had to throw that in there. And cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. You think you're buying souls of men in the grocery store? <laughs> These guys are the people marked by the beast. Yeah. They're buying and selling. Souls of men. You ain't buying none of that in the grocery store. And neither is it a fizzle mark, mark, physical mark you show to buy. We'll get into that though. And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour so great riches is come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors, and as many as traded by sea, stood afar off. And cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads, that means the mourn, and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, wherein we were made rich, wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. That's the part I wanted to get to and we're going to stop. You notice where Paul, well, what is it, 2 Thessalonians 1.8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know God. And the, oh, that's not the right verse. What verses I'm talking about? Vengeance is uh, mine, saith the Lord. Do not repay or recompense. Mm -hmm. you, you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. It's talking about God taking vengeance. Right. And we think it's talking about God taking vengeance on people. Right? right? Notice what it says there. It says Babylon, the whore of Babylon, was drunk with the blood of the saints. It says all the blood of the saints and all the people in the world was on her, is what it says, if you keep reading. All the blood of the saints, all the blood of all the people that were killed in the world is on her, it says. And then it says God avenges their blood on who? Babylon. On who? Babylon. What does Hosea 13, 14 say about the vengeance of God? What is it against? Death. What did it say come forth out of Babylon? Death, Death and famine. There's God avenging the blood of everyone that's been slain. And he's avenging the blood of everyone that's been slain on Babylon. Babylon is the system of the serpent. It's death. Death itself. It's the poison of asps. It's the wisdom of the world. It's the wisdom of the serpent. It's called iniquity in the scriptures. 
the very next chapter is Jesus coming clothed in a flame of fire it says on his feet with the sword coming out of his mouth let there be light the very next chapter is the lake of fire where death and hell are cast into the lake of fire where did death and hell come forth come from the mighty horsemen Babylon how does God avenge the blood he avenges the blood by destroying Babylon Do you see it? You crinkling your forehead. You got a question? Just trying to let it sink in, I think. I'll read it. Rejoice over her. Thou. This is why John was like, who can open the scrolls? Remember, John began by saying, I'm your brother in tribulation and in patience. Patiently waiting for what? To wit the redemption of our bodies and to see death completely removed from creation. Well, here it says, John opened the scrolls. What did John think was going to happen when he opened the scrolls? That Babylon, the whore of Babylon, that which produced death in the earth, and that which was drunk with the blood of the saints, that which had drunk with the blood of all people, was now going to be destroyed, and vengeance would be taken upon Babylon. Death. That's why John wanted the scroll to be opened. That's the vengeance he wants to take. That's the vengeance he wants to take. That's, that's what it is. That's what it is. It's not you or me. It's, the, it's, it's death. It's Babylon. Right. It's the wickedness. That's right. That which destroys people's lives. Yeah. That's what he wants to take vengeance on. Now, here's, here's the problem. This is why we struggle to interpret it. It says God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. It also says that hell... Or the place of the dead, or grave, or the grave, or the lake of fire was not created for human beings. Mm -hmm. But for the devils and his angels, Babylon. Right? The problem is, God created human beings in his image. Which means, his equals. Love doesn't insist on its own way. The scripture says. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not insist on its own way. God doesn't insist on his own way. And people can reject life and join themselves to Babylon if they want. And God will shed a tear over that. It's not God that's killing them. It's that Babylon has a plague in itself. Does anybody think death can keep living? If God just lets death be revealed for what it is, it will capitulate on itself. Death doesn't have life. How can it keep going? If you just let death run its full course on its own, it will just capitulate. What do you think would have happened to this world if when Adam brought death into the world, God was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Woo! And he just peaced out. What do you think would have happened here? Do you think this would have just kept living? Paul talked about the forbearance of God in Romans 3, I think. The forbearance of God is where God is holding back sin and death from fully manifesting. Not willing to let creation perish. There's, I love the X-Men. And there's an X-Men movie where they're about to be overtaken in their little spaceship by a lake because the dam broke and the water's coming. Well, Jean, Jean's one of my favorite characters because she's the strongest one. But she's so strong, they teach her to keep her power wrapped up because it's too much. Well, Jean, they're about to all die. And without them noticing, Jean gets out of the spaceship and stands in the gap and stops the dam, the water. And she just stands there and holds back the dam of water to keep it from consuming. That's a picture of God's forbearance. Mm. 
and him holding back the totality of Babylon manifesting, right? And capitulating on his creation. And the vengeance of God isn't so much like we think of, I'm going to take a sword and smite somebody. It's more just God letting what Babylon has in itself manifest. It takes itself out. It's gone. All those that join themselves to it. But he's not willing and he should perish. No, and, and God, God will weep over that. It says God takes no destruction or no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. <clears throat> when Jerusalem wouldn't come to him, I said this last night, I think. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I came to gather you to myself, but you would not. Right? right? Yeah. He can't force people to come to him. Paul talked about you stored up for yourself wrath against the day of wrath. Did he say God stored it up for them? Or they stored it up for themselves? Yeah. And we'll get into the wrath of the Lamb tomorrow when we talk so, about... So are you saying that you can store up wrath for yourself? I'm saying you can store, you can condemn yourself to death if you reject the only one who has life. Like Judas is called the son of perdition. That's a great example of what perdition actually is. And the scriptures talk about perdition a lot. But Judas was the son of perdition. Did God condemn Judas or did Judas condemn himself? Who brought death to Judas? God or himself? Okay, well that's a perfect picture of perdition and how it manifests. Well, everyone that perishes would be in the likeness of the son of perdition. They serve themselves with death because they rejected the only life that there is. They condemn themselves to death. God doesn't condemn anyone to death. He can't condemn anyone to death. That's why the gates in Revelation are open. He can't actually keep anybody from the tree of life. But you ain't coming to him to eat from the tree of life if you don't have the faith of Jesus Christ in your heart. Right? That's why, he wants us, that's why we preach the gospel. So that all might come to him and have life on the last day instead of cowering away unto destruction. Right? Yep. Does that make sense? Yes. We'll stop there. Glory to God. You guys are awesome. <laughs> <laughs>